Welcome to another episode of Talking With Our Mouths. Well, I'm Nightingale Nguyen. And I'm Michael Chan. And today we have a very special guest with us. We are happy to say hello to Katisha Shaw, who is an amazing and talented actress and also a first-time brand-new filmmaker. Katisha, hello. 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 <laughs> it's so weird to hear filmmaker after my name. <laughs> right? I, I feel the same way because I'm also a new first-time filmmaker. I know. And, and we're going forward and making stuff together next. So, yes, we yeah. are. Yes, we are. <laughs> this is the dream team, guys. Yeah, listeners, if you can't tell, Katisha and I know each other quite well. <laughs> no, we just met each other last night. It's it's wild. Um, no, <laughs> no we, we just have amazing chemistry, and that's how we know we want to work with each other. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Just hanging out, enjoying a moment of silence here as I sit outside and enjoy what's left of quarantine and the Peterborough area as we're starting to open up and um right you're in enjoying that it's summer now. you're in phase two right yeah phase two technically started on friday so mm-hmm. we're in the third day and from what i understand because i'm avoiding the crowds is that people went out in hordes instantly because i mean you give people an inch and they're going to take a mile oh, so i'm just going to sit at home and wait and wait for people to get all of their their yeehaw out and then i'll start venturing into the public <laughs> It's like instead of unleash the kraken, it's like unleash the people. Yeah, the people. I was like they've been cooped up for so long and they don't even care anymore. They're just gonna go and do the things, and I'm like, nah, nah, I still don't need to do that. <laughs> See, we're we're in Toronto and we're still in phase one because we suck. But I think it's also that we have a really big population as well. Yeah, it is definitely population density and like sharing of information between people. I think Toronto is safe to stay in phase one until we are sure that going into phase two is going to be smart. I'm going to be honest with you. I am not comfortable with phase one. Oh, me neither. (laughs) Like, I just, I feel like we're going at this a little fast. And I, I know people need to get back to work. Like, I get that very, very, very much. And that the economy is suffering. But at the same time, it's like, we're, we're risking our lives, and what economy will we have if more people die or get sick so they're in the hospital, right? Absolutely, 100%. And I mean, it just goes to show people ha- people are desperate to get back to work because it shows the inequity that we have in our built-in system. So that exactly. tells me that we need, to, we need to make changes fundamentally in order to move forward. The benefit mm-hmm. is our government stepped up, both on the provincial and the federal level, and said, hey, we have a problem and we're going to work together to ensure that people can pay their bills. So we have the the CERB uh, program that's gone out to those who are already working, mm-hmm. which means that also identified the fact that our basic minimum income should be at $2,000 a month. This is so cool because now things are coming to light that, say, if we were to the south and hanging out in Trump country, they only offered $1,200 for the entire last four months that we are in this position and if you were currently living paycheck to paycheck and working multiple jobs and still in the red that you know thousand dollars isn't going to do squat for you so so at least we had that buffer zone and can prove that we have that buffer zone and our taxes actually did something good for us which is so cool but i mean there's still a lot of work to be done and it just this whole disease has laid bare 
many of the situations that we need to address and should have addressed years ago. Mm -hmm. There's also the, uh, I'm not sure how it's like in Peterborough, but in Toronto, we are, we're having problems with our, especially our like small businesses and small business owners. Like a lot of their landlords aren't tapping into the help the government is willing to give. Because yeah. there's a program that's supposed to help tenants, right, with their businesses. But unfortunately, the tenants can't be the ones who apply. It is the yeah, landlord. Yeah, the master. landlord, which is stupid. Yeah. Like they made that was a massive mistake, but it was a learning curve, right? So the government tried to do something. They just rolled it out the wrong way, and then greed and deception took over. Because I mean, people are gross, and they're always going to find a way to follow the dollar. And those landlords, um, I keep saying this to a lot of my friends that run businesses. It's those landlords can either play nice and maintain a paying tenant mm -hmm. or they can lose their tenant and sit vacant and we could blast them because this is where I like cancel culture is we can actually blast them and tell the world what a terrible human being this particular landlord is wh whether it be commercial or residential and that place will sit empty so either you play nice and you have a tenant that comes back and pays their bills and continues to pay for many many years to come mm -hmm. or you sit empty and make no money at all you choose. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's just. And I it's say this: I'm a, also a residential uh, landlord, so I get it. Like, <laughs> oh yeah. it's such. There's this misconception, especially in in downtown Toronto, among and and I get it, but among tenants, residential tenants, that all landlords are these rich, greedy monsters who just want to take oh, yeah. advantage of people. And, you know, they should lower the rent to this amount so that people can can afford it. And yeah. I'm like, first of all, it's it's as someone who works in real estate, like okay. I look at I look at, you know, I look at our pricing and I'm like, it's unfortunate that the market value is so high. But mm -hmm. Toronto is like the economic center of Canada and so, so many people work in Toronto that it's going to drive up property value. But on top of all that, a lot of uh, investors aren't like rich people. A lot of people no. are, if you look at statistics, there's a huge, uh, like a huge proponent of older individuals who maybe have one, sometimes two properties that they spend basically their life savings on to own in order to yeah. build up more savings, but they don't have that much. And if they lower the rent to a rate that is quote unquote affordable, depending on what that number is, they can't afford to actually keep the place. Yeah, no, there there's a massive misconception between the renting population versus the ownership population that are, have these income properties. And mm -hmm. I mean, don't get me wrong, there are some really greedy, awful human beings out there that are jacking the rate absolutely but for an example and you'll understand this because you you're in real estate um the cost to run a home is x and that could include the insurance that could include the mortgage the upkeep the uh utilities uh anything else that goes into that and that's the baseline yeah and like a, a small-time landlord i barely break even because of those, oh, property taxes as well. That's the other one that kills me because my property taxes are stupid high and I'm in Peterborough. <laughs> yeah. And what's happening too is because Toronto money, because the big paying jobs are in Toronto, those people are realizing the cost of living is less in Peterborough. So they're actually coming and they're commuting daily 
to go and live in Peterborough to pay less to live, but then they go to Toronto to continue to make that money. So Peterborough's property values are skyrocketing. I read an article yesterday that the average price of a home is in the 500000 that's half a million dollars in Peterborough. In Peterborough, wow. which is this, you know, tiny little town that's two hours away from the big smoke. And if you think about it, the people that live in Peterborough, most people here, mm-hmm. afford to buy a half a million dollar home. And these half a million dollar homes are trash. Like when I went looking to buy my place, the place that I rent out, sorry, I would go into places that were so dilapidated, and just dismal and they wanted 400,000 for it. And I was wow. like that that's not okay. Like if I I'm, I'm going to spend 400,000 I want a place that has a new roof and an updated wow. kitchen and this that and the other but that's a whole other discussion <laughs> on a real estate podcast not this one. Sorry. Oh, no. no. <laughs> but like, no, it's it's the, valid. It's the just inequity between what's coming from Toronto right. to Peterborough is <laughs> But I do it's think crazy. It, and like, it is it's happening now in the middle of a pandemic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, well, I think at least especially with Toronto, it shows that some of the purchase costs may be a little on the high side because a lot of people don't know that, especially with new builds like pre-construction, if you buy a pre-construction nowadays, uh, even with like 25, 30% down, your mortgage mm-hmm. plus maintenance plus a property tax will be, and, and if you rent it out at the market rate, you're going to be losing money every single yeah. month for the first five to seven years and a lot of absolutely. people don't know that absolutely and then they go on social media and they go on these massive tirades to call landlords trash and i receive abuse on a daily anytime that i've listed my place for rent anytime that i've had to make a comment regarding rental units this that, and the other i made out to be the biggest piece of garbage that ever walked this earth and here i am sitting where my tenants, I have not actively collected rent from since February because of COVID. Mm-hmm. Now, what they give me, I appreciate, but I don't actively seek it out. I don't demand it. I haven't threatened, you know, removal. I haven't done any of that because we're all in a position. But yes. even right. even as early as last week, I made a comment on another political page where they were trying to demonize a landlord who was actually being garbage, where they made a comment like how people don't actually deserve to live or something. I'm paraphrasing right now. And I said that this human being is trash. And I said, there are decent landlords out there who will work with your tenant, who will work with this and and try to find a solution and come up with a payment plan or whatever. Like, not even considering COVID, but COVID's its own own animal. But we will work with you. Like, I've had my tenant come to me over Christmas and say, I can't pay my rent right now. This is going on. This is going on. And I actually went out and bought my tenant groceries that week because I knew how bad it was. And I don't know very many landlords that do that. I'm not saying this to get cats. Like, I don't really care. Like, this is just who I am as a person. But when I see all the hate being hurled at people like me constantly because we're just trying to facilitate and allow another human being to live in our home, for example, then we get made out to be monsters. It's really hurtful and it's not effective. Yes, there are scum lords out there. Yes, there are terrible human beings that are just, you know, bending over backwards for capitalism and want to hurt the system and they, they take advantage of the system and they profit because of the system. But there's also so many factors that go into it. Like you pointed out, just the basic cost of running a home, we're in the negative more often than not. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. 
but I guess that basically reiterates the the system, right? That and how yeah. it needs to be fixed. Because, like I said earlier, I really do understand and sympathize and empathize with tenants. Like it's rough. It's really rough. Me too. And I've been there. I've been that low income tenant. I've been the one, you know, under the thumb of a uh, of a slumlord. I've been the mm-hmm. one who's taken abuse and had to live in some of the most questionable homes ever okay so i get it i've seen both sides of it but it's kind of the whole thing is scary and this bubble needs to pop and it needs to change uh for the better for all of us absolutely (laughs) and that's why we're so grateful to have you on as a guest because we love having compassionate people on our show and we hope that our community who are listening to us are grateful to know that there are good people out there speaking of this on a different side of this whole quarantine thing what have Mm -hmm. you been eating these days while at home (laughs) <laughs> I have been eating so much lately. Oh my god. <laughs> I am such a foodie. I love it. I've been cooking a lot more at home. I've been baking a lot more at home. I was a baker before all of this started, but as we were joking about earlier before we started recording, um I have taken time to kind of more perfect my baking craft where, you know, I would make a loaf of focaccia before, but now I'm making artful focaccia where I spent the time and I delicately cut peppers and onions and olives and and garlics and I made art on top of my bread. Oh, I still remember <laughs> your uh, your garden on the flatbread. Yeah. That <laughs> like was beautiful. That's the stuff I've been doing and I mean, I could be painting, you know, with watercolors and doing other stuff, but I was like, "No, nah, I'm going to make it on bread." <laughs> <laughs> Bread has been fun too because since quarantine, I don't know how it's been in Toronto, but I know out here the supply chain for groceries has been a little weird. So, you know, with everyone being at home and bored and looking for stuff to do, everyone decided to become a baker. And that, I'm totally okay with that. That's super cool. Like, do your thing. Um, but that means that flour and yeast and all of those things vanished from, from the stores. <laughs> and day drinking, right? I hear that that's a thing. That is. Yeah, day drinking has become a thing. I think when we're all done, we're all gonna have to take a take a couple AA classes, <laughs> just just to balance ourselves out. <laughs> the amount of social media posts I've seen since COVID started of people drinking during the day and joking about drinking while they're doing their work is oh is yeah incredible. Oh yeah, I'm I'm not gonna lie. I've been one of those people that have I, my first couple weeks of quarantine I spent a lot of time exploring wine um (laughs) and then i took a couple months off and then i mean yesterday i enjoyed a box of wine and (laughs) today a box box. uh the whole thing like that not the whole thing but i mean (laughs) i uh i did punish it Uh (laughs) (laughs) oh my god yeah no like my wife and i we have a lot of old wine like some uh, some bottles were given to us by my parents who no longer drink that much wine and they've had it in their cabinet for ages. So they gave it to us a few years ago and then we never drank it. And then I get a lot of like gift wine at Christmas every year that yeah. we also can't make it through. And now we're home. We're like, hmm, let's see which one of these are still good. Right. <laughs> so we, we're now opening all these wines. Eeny, like, oh, meeny, miny, moe. Yep. yep. Yeah, and, and then you know, it's like if they, if they taste skunky or vinegary to you, is that even a word? Vinegary? Um, it is now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> use them in cooking. Save oh. them and cook with them, and you can make some really incredible, like different foods. Like risotto is so good when you use a wine base for it. 
cooking a roast with uh, wine in it, even if it's gone off, is delicious. So yeah, don't just throw them away if they're not great wines. Just cook with them. Didn't know that. Cooking tips with Kat. <laughs> yep, didn't know that, but glad we didn't throw out too many. We most of them, <laughs> most of them are surprisingly still good. Like I guess when it's expensive wine, uh, especially like when someone gives you an expensive gift wine, I guess it could last longer. I don't know. Yeah. But, well, proper wines, like, I mean, all wines, they age more, and, and as they age, they get better, especially if it's a wine that's got a cork in it. Sorry, I'm going to be full-on sommelier right now. Oh, no, it's fine. Um, take the wine and make sure you lay it on its side and lay it towards the cork so it can actually absorb and, like, for lack of a better word, churn <laughs> within yeah. the, the flavors that come from the corking, and it will continue to evolve and develop deeper flavors the longer it sits. So, uh, so I'm actually drinking a little little bit of wine right now i actually have uh some wine from one of my favorite wineries near my home it's called applewood farm winery it's up on uh, stoville road in mccowan they're actually a farm and we originally discovered them when we were looking for somewhere to go pick apples and then eventually pick strawberries and all that and pumpkins for halloween all that so we've been going there for like years and years and years and then we're like Ooh, you guys have wine and we discovered that so their wine is not made from grapes they make it from all the fruits they pick and amazing we started off with their apple wine but then we've branched mm-hmm. out and i'm drinking a glass of eden which is one of my favorites it's strawberry rhubarb wine oh that would be really good oh yeah it's <laughs> uh it's we we chilled it a little and it's a perfect, perfect summer wine. And if you uh, couldn't tell, Applewood Farm Winery, well, farm and winery, is our featured food place of the day. Nightingale, tell our listeners about it. Alrighty, Applewood Farm and Winery, located at 12416 McCowan Road in Stouffville, Ontario. Applewood Farm and Winery has been in the Pesafiume family for almost 45 years. It started out as the first pick-your-own-strawberry and apple farm in Stouffville, Ontario. With a strong commitment to quality and access to the freshest fruits available, they have produced jams and jellies available on their farm. They also offer wagon rides, a children's playground, a straw bale mountain, and a corn maze. It's the perfect place to bring your family and enjoy fresh fruits. For our adults, a winery started in September 2000. That's almost 20 years ago. They have a tasting bar where you can sample their award-winning wine, check out their fruit wines created from the fruits harvested at the farm, like what Michael said, have a nice chat with the winemakers, and check out their selection of ciders and meads. So when you get the chance and have to Stouffville, don't forget Applewood Farm and Winery. They truly pride on having you try the fruits of their labor. You can find them online at applewoodfarmwinery.com and Facebook at Applewood Farm Winery. During the quarantine period, they offer curbside pickup on Saturdays. Back to you, Michael. Why, thank you. I was actually, I looked them up quickly. I want to go and pick up some of their stuff. Uh-huh. Um, I, I'm fortunate that I actually live in farm country, so we have a few different uh, distilleries and wineries in the area that are making fruit wines, but I'm always interested in trying new things. And Stouffville isn't that far. I mean, it's a couple-hour drive, but I enjoy... One of the things that I'm really enjoying lately, because we are in quarantine and there's nothing to do, is just going for a drive and just enjoying the scenery as we go. Oh, yeah, that's hey, what... Uh, 
that's what my wife, my kid, and I have been doing. We've been going on drives, just, and we discovered like all these new food places as well, just by going on drives. So we are, we'll see them on the road, and we'll be like, that place looks interesting. And then you know we'll write it down, and then when I get home, I look it up. Maybe we'll feature a place or two in the future. Yeah, and if you're up for fruit wine a big distance. Yeah, there's a few, um, I want to say it's the Kortha Lakes Winery. I'm, I might be wrong here, but there's a couple in the area that create different types of fruit wines, and there's actually a couple here that also do um, kumbacha. I, I might be saying that wrong too. So we're really lucky to be in the Kawartha's because we have such a wide range of farm country here, and the creations that are made in this area um, are incredible and diverse. So I get to sample and explore things that I might not have explored if I was in the city because I wouldn't know to look for them. And so, I was just going to say, if you guys are ever up for the trip, uh, not far from me is the Buckhorn Berry Farm, and they do the things like, you know, in the during the fall we do the the corn maze and the pumpkin harvest and all of that fun stuff for the kids. And they've also got uh, like. During the summer, they do berry picking. I don't know if it's going to happen this year because of COVID, but of course, it's one of my favorite places to go with my son to just enjoy, enjoy what the farm can offer. And there's so much to play and do. Just like this this farm that you're featuring, they've built around bringing people out so they can see what farm to table actually means and explore uh, where our food comes from and what we do with it and how it goes from being something in the ground to actually on our table. So it's really neat when you get to experience that and and see it. In live time. Well, we would love to go with you. Maybe we'll make a whole episode out of it. We'll just bring our mobile recording uh, equipment and we'll do a whole thing. Yeah. Uh, and you're always welcome to come and visit. I'm going to steal your Yay. baby and just hug her until she hits me. So it's fine. <laughs> so, so what kind of wines uh, are you into? Um, I have a wide taste when it comes to wine. Uh, my household, we grew up where when I was younger, my parents really wanted to embrace that Mediterranean lifestyle. So we used to have wine as part of our regular meals. And when I was a little girl, I had the ability to taste a wine and tell you approximately how old it was and what region it came from. Don't ask me to do that now because I'm well past it, but it was this little parlor trick that my parents loved. Uh, now I'm classy and I will drink anything from boxed wine to the really expensive uh, vineyard stuff. You, uh, drinking anything right now? Oh, I'm drinking the cheapest, the cheap. Uh, <laughs> girls' night out, <laughs> pineapple mango tango, because it's not really a wine, it's more of a wobbly pop, but I figured if you were going to have a drink today that I would catch up. Yes, well, <laughs> I guess this will be our very first fruit intoxicated episode. Say what? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Quarantine got us crazy. Yes, yes it has. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be drinking my pineapple ice slush because I don't drink. And I don't know, I like pineapple because they're just, I just want to be in the spirit of being fruity for the episode. And they remind me of a white sand beach, relaxing yeah. to the sounds of those so nice actually, ocean waves. Mm, I'm actually going to open another pineapple bottle. Pineapple Yes, get after it. Get down I, with your bad self and... 2.30 in the afternoon on a Sunday. Just just so I can feature it on the episode, I'm opening a bottle of 2012 Evans Black Current Port. It is Ooh. a uh, gold medal winner, all Canadian wine championships. And on their website, I'm going to read it, a fruit port, absolutely, full of fresh black currants. Everything about this wine is massive, sweet, 
with balancing, mouth-watering acidity, 18% alcohol per volume. This wine pairs well with any strong cheeses or by itself following a meal. An excellent wine to put down for many years. There you go. I mean, you can't go wrong with wine and cheese ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nope, you can't. So I'm gonna. It's been a it's been a running joke in my house that every time that I go out, I buy a bottle of wine and cheese. There's more cheese in my fridge than there are anything else right now. So. Oh my god, cheese is you, good. You and my wife will get along so well. She's she <laughs> loves cheese. I'm sure. I think your wife already knows that I love her to death, so it's fine. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We have a poll out on Instagram, and 71% of our listeners drink wine, 29% do not, and 67% have actually tried fruit wine, and 33% have not. Ooh. Right. Yeah. I think I you also... grow to like wine more as you age. Like I remember, like even though my parents did that, where they tried to instill the Mediterranean diet lifestyle into our, our livelihood when we were younger, that wine wasn't you know something that I would reach for, and then as a teenager, and early adult wine when I drink of choice and now I'm like bring on the wine I want all the wine <laughs> yeah for me with wine yeah I didn't I didn't drink it start drinking it until after I met my wife because before that I actually didn't drink very much and uh, I bought into the idea that Asians can't drink without getting drunk and I never <laughs> wanted to get drunk so I barely drank And then occasionally I would try drinking beer because that's what, you know, people in university do. Uh, And then when I was at the Pirate Festival, I drank way too much beer and never got drunk. And I was like, ooh, that that opens a whole door for me. And then my wife came along and then I got sophisticated. Thanks, honey. (laughs) Well, beer's kind of weird. Like, I used to work for a brewery, too, and beer has its own culture to it and it just it just makes your belly grow and it doesn't get you you know inebriated well it can make you inebriated but it's just like it's it's own type of drunk and yes. its own type of buzz and then you just feel fat and gross afterwards and you could be 90 pounds soaking wet but if you drink six beer you're just gonna the yeast is just gonna push your belly out and you're just gonna feel gross anyways so i'd rather go with wine where it doesn't make you feel nasty after <laughs> so i'm, I'm gonna Wine's say I back just... in the day yeah, I just uh, yeah, I took a sip of the port. Oh my god. I've never had this port <laughs> before. So we bought it because mm. it sounded interesting. But yeah, they're not they're not wrong. The taste is huge. <laughs> it just punched me in the face full on Amazing. with black current goodness. It is epic. I I'm in love with this. I'm it's suppo- you're supposed to sip it but I'm, I'm taking, like, big gulps. That's not a good idea. I'm going to get really drunk at some point. Um, For night, our listeners, I'm, <laughs> our featured wine is Evan's Black Current from Applewood Farm Winery. Yeah. Please come By the way, it. if you're on their website, I also highly recommend um, the Applewood's Amber Cider. Hopped Amber oh, Cider. Oh, I love an Amber Cider. Great summer drink. Just get some ice, put in a glass, and pour this in, and... Yeah, like bring it, bring it for a picnic, bring it to the beach. It's perfect. I can also recommend the trio. The trio is made of blueberries, cranberries, and blackcurrants. 
and oh man, it's one of the best bottles of wine you'll ever have from them. I just don't have a bottle with me right now, which is why I couldn't feature it. Plus, their Mac Mead is unfortunately sold out, but if they get any back, I highly recommend it if you're into meads. Nice. Okay, I'm looking at our Google Doc. Knight, I noticed you have a history bite. You want to hit that? Yeah, so according to the Tipsy Grape, did you know that the first wines were made from figs, dates, and watermelons in the Mesopotamian Valley? About, drum roll please, 50,000 years ago. What? Nice. That was a long time ago. Yes, yeah, so they were actually that humans have been getting drunk for many, many, many years. <laughs> yeah, and Life they were like hard. super intoxicating and like with alcohol content as high as like thirty percent, and Whoa. they were like thick, syrupy, and sweet AF to disguise like you know the fact that it's like from figs and stuff. Wow. Okay, I can just yeah, imagine so having a there was like just for fun, like. <laughs> yeah, apparently it tasted really bad, so they threw in like a lot of like random things like pepper, honey, resin, oregano, and other herbs just to make like you know, making alcoholic watermelons taste better. So by today's <laughs> standards, these wines are basically undrinkable. Fifty thousand years ago, they tried. Man, I. No, it sounds more like prison wine. <laughs> I would love to try watermelon wine. And it's super thick too. It's syrupy. Like that's that's what they call wine. How do you I... make watermelon thick? <laughs> that's, that's a feat on its own. <laughs> are, are we saying T-H-I-C-C thick? Because they are thick. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they're thick. thick. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, the intoxication begins. Exactly. Our first ever fruit intoxication episode. Yes, brought yes, to you yes. By talking with their mouths full. <laughs> I always wanted to know, like, how did pre-society humans come up with these concepts where they actively and intentionally let fruit rot and they're like hey we should drink that <laughs> that sounds like a good idea let's let's consume this nasty liquid and see what happens and then they liked it <laughs> how maybe they they realized that wasting is bad for the environment so they were really <laughs> trying to like you know find a creative way to preserve things i mean that's a fair assessment but Gross. <laughs> As we sit here drinking our fermented grapes. Yes. So, so speaking of history, where, uh, where were you born? Me? Yes, Kat. I was born in Canada, accidentally. I showed up very early. Uh, but if you were alluding to where I grew up, I am That would be the next question. <laughs> I, I grew up in Costa Rica. Oh. So my... Pop culture references and and sometimes historical references are a little bit askew because I was raised in a mix of Costa Rican slash American schooling system. So mm -hmm. a lot of the fun stuff that you guys would have grown up here experiencing in Canada I didn't get because, I mean, it was 10 years behind when we'd finally get the movie that you got released <laughs> down south, but it's still where I'm at. You know, what, what's interesting about what you're saying is, like, I'm born in Canada, but my parents uh, immigrated here from Hong Kong, mm -hmm. and for, like, the first 10 to 12 years of my life, most of the pop culture I got was from Hong Kong. Amazing. So, yes, I did watch some of the, like, we would, we would watch uh, 
like American movies in the theater once every two weeks. It, it like uh, that happened. So uh, we were kind of up to date on North American stuff, but I was really behind on most pop culture until like I was like a full fledged teenager. You know what I mean? Like so, and even even growing up here, there are there are ways that that one could be behind in pop culture. So I kind yeah. of like I, I kind of understand where you're coming from with your pop culture or at least North American pop culture. Uh, yeah, experience. people pull it on me all the time. They're like, Hey, did you remember this episode of Friends? I'm like, ah, nope. Uh, sorry, <laughs> didn't get it. <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I but never I watched Friends. <laughs> so even how- even t- even today I still have no interest in watching Friends. Sorry to those who like it. It's just not my wheelhouse. Um, but like those kind of references are the ones that get me all the time and they're like, Oh, did you not see this or did you not get that or you know, this this moment of history? I'm like, Yeah, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> yep. No, I also, having not watched Friends, I get that too. It's just like my wife and her best friend, they they quote Friends all the time, and I'm just like Zoom, over my head. <laughs> um, but okay, so you grew up in Costa Rica. Are you Costa Rican mm-hmm. or or like what? Are you a mix of cultures in terms of your technically? I do have a dual citizenship and a residency. Although I think my residency may have expired because I haven't been back in a while. Um, I have to look into that one. Uh, I was uh, educated all up until high school in Costa Rica, and I mm-hmm. did come to Canada and do my last couple of years of high school here. Right. Uh, and and then I went to college here. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, I'm going to age myself right now, but I have officially been in Canada for 20 years. <laughs> wow. Which is kind of bizarre because I mean, Costa Rica is still home to me, but I've been here this long. So I should call this home as well, and I, I do. Uh, but it's been a wild ride, and I've been, you know, all over the world and experienced all sorts of different cultures, and been able. I've been fortunate enough to experience so many things, which I think has changed my my worldview and how I interact with people. I mean, I might have missed the pop culture references, but my my view of humanity is very different than say a lot of the friends that I made when I came to Canada and I went to high school here, and those who have never left their area code, for example, and I love them dearly, but there's huge discrepancies in their opinions on how they walk through life because of it. Mm-hmm. It's kind of wild. <laughs> so what is life like in Costa Rica? A lot slower. Everything is more relaxed. I mean, our our motto in life is Pura Vida, which means pure life. right? So we don't do things for the concept of, say, capitalism. We do it for the enjoyment of living. Right, everything is much slower. We take our time with things we enjoy and we savor. We, we love passionately, um, and those those concepts are still strongly instilled in how I interact in my day to day life here now. And like I do speak very fastly, which is common in Costa Rican Spanish. We speak very fast, but that is the only thing that we do fast. No, that's a lie. We drive really fast too. Um, <laughs> but for as far as life goes, it's just everything slows down because. We have we, we love and experience time in that concept where it doesn't have to be done this second. We don't need to go out and run our bodies ragged. Sorry, there's a boat going by. I don't know if you can oh, hear it right now. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> really loud. Cool. Um, <laughs> our first sorry. boat. It's some kind of cigarette boat. I don't know. Can't see it quite from here, but I can. We hit a milestone. But, yeah. Background boat. Nice. <laughs> 
Um, where I live right now, in case anyone's curious, is I actually I don't live in Peterborough proper. I live out in Lakefield, and I live on a lake, and I live in my little. We call it the cabin in the woods, and I'm hidden away from society, which is really nice. Um, it has its pros and cons. Where I mean, it's a two and a half hour drive for me to get to the city. So if I'm going in for auditions or anything like that, it makes it a little bit difficult. So I had to plan my day a lot differently. Mm -hmm. A 15 minute audition is actually a four hour expenditure for me, but that's that's something. Sorry, a second boat. <laughs> this is the busiest I've ever seen the lake since uh, quarantine started. So, all right. <laughs> nah. So, because nowadays a lot of productions are shot in Costa Rica. Was that the case when you were living there? No, not at all. I mean, we had a lot of expats that would come down, and like tourist industry was our our biggest thing. Uh, that was that was floating the industry in in general. And now people are coming down and realizing how easy it is. Just like how. Um, you know, shutting down a, a main city street in Toronto, why American production likes to come up and use us here, it's the same thing down in Costa Rica where there's tax breaks and there's the ability to suck down, like, shut down major cities. And our major cities, uh, a lot of people think of the third world as just, you know, tin huts and dirt and trees and stuff, but we're actually a very civilized, grown-up area. I mean, yeah, we do have our deep pockets of poverty and our really concerning areas, but our major cities don't want, look much different than, say, I don't know, Oshawa, I want to say. <laughs> it's, yeah. not quite as, it's not quite as built up as Toronto, but it's still built up and sprawling, and the infrastructure is strong and effective. Um, I know before I left, there was issues with how taxes were paid, and people were just kind of avoiding it, and our couple presidents were kind of arrested for treason and stuff like that, but that's a oh. different story. Uh, <laughs> 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 but, I mean, since... Since then, there have been a lot of upgrades to, like, our healthcare system is astounding, and the, the way that people interact is just so cool to see, because people expect it being third world that we don't have the infrastructure to support the people, but the people come together in so many different ways where it's just beautiful. So, did you know you wanted to uh, be an actor, or at least be a performer or artist of some kind when you were in like growing up in Costa Rica or is that something that came along later once say um, you're here in Canada I would have to say that I always had a bug you know to to be a little dramatic to be the one doing the presentations to the, be the public speaker um, I got into music early I used to do speeches at catechism class I used to do all oh, those wow. things because I was always <laughs> strangely the center of attention even though I don't actually like attention but I was always the one to lead some kind of a production that was going on. I was leading the group classes. So, yeah, I would I would say that I definitely had some kind of inkling towards uh, theater, at least. I, I, I don't think I had imagined film and television at that point, but definitely theater, somewhere in dance, um, although I didn't ever, ever really get into dance. I, I started and then I quit. <laughs> but, like theater and vocals and, and all of that was definitely in my wheelhouse. And then when I came to Canada, I heavily got into visual arts when I was doing uh, high school and classes here. Uh, art, Well, even in Costa Rica, visual arts were a big thing for me where I was painting. I was drawing. I was creating clay. I've, I've always had some kind of a creative angle to me uh, where I might not have pursued all of them. Like, I am definitely not a sculptor, but I do enjoy playing with clay. I'm My visual arts maybe took a back seat, but every now and then I still break out the sketchbook and I'll put together a piece of art and then I paint it and then I'm really proud of it and then I 
throw it in the back corner and I burn it. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's a lot of stuff. Uh, <laughs> because we're so picky and, like, conscious of our own art that we look at it and we hate what we do. And I think that's common with all artists as we pick ourselves apart and we have that whole, you know, uh, imposter syndrome that we don't, we're not good enough or not, we don't belong here, that we shouldn't be doing this. Because yeah. that little voice in the back of our head tells us that society doesn't appreciate art. So we should, you know, find something productive to do with our time. And I say that in quotation marks because I think as I've aged, I've really... I've really looked at art in a different way and realized how important it is for society. Whether yeah. you're doing doodles on a phone book while you're chatting on the phone with, a, uh, with somebody, or if you're creating art and selling it, that art is still very important. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I feel like so much of society, especially when you're growing up, sure, they, they you have your art class and whatever, but so much of education in society tells you that art is an unstable unrealistic thing to go into because yeah. it it's it doesn't provide right it does, they, yeah they, they say things like you don't really have a function in society you should do things like be a doctor be a lawyer be an accountant be yeah hell, do all these a, things a that make society continue to churn right like because they want you to be a productive member of a society they want you to be a cog in the machine that helps that machine continue to mm -hmm. move but art changes that art moves mountains and you have this opportunity whether it be a visual artist or an actor or a poet or a musician that you can find a platform to change people's perspectives so they yeah. interact with that cog in society differently. And I always, uh, nowadays, I keep pointing people to this pandemic we're in as mm -hmm. proof of how important art is. And I don't mean just like TV and movies because I know we're all at home and we're watching stuff, we're listening to stuff, some music too, but like. Art in general has been such an important part of keeping people sane. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. Well, it's true. Sorry yeah. to cut you off. But no, one of the no, things that I, I learned from Deb Aquila, and at the time she was with Lionsgate, and now she's, uh, I think she's with Paramount, and she's gone off on her own thing. So this is Deb Aquila, casting director out of uh, California, and it had this profound reaction in me where... Deb's thing was to talk about the state affairs of what's going on in the world. And at the time when I met her, um, Americans were trying to walk back, uh, like, abortion rights. And I don't care where you stand on abortion rights, but this was the this, this situation at the time. And this deeply affected her. And, like, we hadn't even gotten to this point in the boiling point of what's going on in society. But that, that little moment triggered her. And, and it was really cool to watch her and, and learn from her as she explained to this group of 30 other actors who had come to her class... Um, what art really meant in the world. And she broke it down and said, when there's a dictator or there's a change or a disturbance in the force, the first thing that that oppressing culture tries to do is to remove the voice of the artist yep. because it lowers the morale of the human. And when we don't have that art, those stories, those images to continue to push us together to maintain some kind of semblance of reality, we un unravel and we start to fall apart and we become depressed and we become more susceptible to being bossed around and told what to do and how society should work. So dictators and authoritarians love to take away those voices first. 
Yes. And it becomes relevant, sorry, um, in the same point where we've become so accustomed to what capitalism is that it's kind of trickled down into the very fiber of our society where as kids are growing, we're told that going into the arts is useless, that we shouldn't focus on that. That's a nice hobby. Go, go and do some math, you know, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah. it's trying to take away our voice to force us to become a member and, and a player in this machine. And I don't like the machine, if you can tell. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, it's interesting because I, a machine is, especially societal machine, is so big that, and, and you know, human talent is so vast Mm-hmm. that you know obviously not everyone's going to be an artist right there are people who are good at math mind you that is an art in and of itself oh absolutely uh, but i i marvel at people that do math so. oh, yeah. but i i feel like everyone has their part to play in society society just has to kind of play catch up to the point where it accepts that every different talent that there is out there mm-hmm. works in Absolutely. its own way in society and should be valued equally. Absolutely, yeah. I agree. But, okay, so when we did you... We did really deep, sorry. <laughs> when did you discover that you wanted to be an actress? Um, I would have to say middle school and high school. I really started to pursue it. Uh, I ended up leaving high school and going into uh, film and television on a whim, I applied to the school that shall not be named uh, <laughs> and got in um, with really a lot of ease and that should have been a red flag because I had no experience or understanding of what the film and television industry was here in, in Canada. And don't get me wrong, I made some great connections and I learned some things but I didn't learn them within the walls of that school. And that school also ended up breaking my spirit and so after I, I left I actually quit acting thinking that I would never be able to do it and then eight years ago I had my son and I left Toronto I had done a whole bunch of other things that are irrelevant to my story anymore I think <laughs> and I left Toronto to go and raise my son because I decided that it wasn't the place that I wanted to be with a, a young child and uh, I started down this journey and then one day a friend of mine that I had met many many years ago who had originally cast me in it in in one flew over the cuckoo's nest and he calls me and he says, hey, I'm, I'm going to direct a show in Peterborough at the Peterborough Theatre Guild. You should come out. I went out and was like, you know what? I haven't seen this guy in forever. I love John dearly. Like, let's just do it. I went out and, of course, we were doing the, the production of Dracula. And it had mostly been precast to some degree with people that he was expecting. And that's cool. I don't have a problem with that at all. And I, I really enjoy the cast that came in. And so there were only a couple little spots that were available. And... I ended up getting cast as a vixen, which I don't know if you know the production of Dracula, but basically I'm just a sex symbol that gets to rough up somebody and go away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that kind of started the train. And I was like, man, I miss acting. I miss this environment. I miss the the community around acting. I miss the people. I miss the invigorating creativity that goes behind it. Because John, as, an, as a director, John likes what he likes. But he also takes notes from the people that he's working with. Mm-hmm. So being able to express my thoughts, because even though I was this tiny nothing that 
other people would go, oh, I don't want to play that role. No, I'll just turn it down. Like, because it's one of those roles. I had three lines. Who cares? You know, like <laughs> it was a nothing role. But I would go to every single rehearsal, even though I didn't need to be there, and I would just sit and I would watch and I would listen and I would experience what was going on, and then him and the stage manager at the time would have conversations about, well, what if we tried this, and what if we tried that? And I would start to speak up and go, well, hey, wouldn't it be really cool if we tried this? Or um, wouldn't it be neat if th they entered from this way? And, and so like that, that spark, that moment, kind of set this back on its path. And I remembered who I was, right? Before my spirit was broken, I remembered who I was. And it took, you know, it took 15 years before I, I got back there, almost 15 years. It took, it, it took that long for me to re-find myself. And and then as soon as Dracula was done, I was into the next production, the next production. And it got to the point that I started doing plays where I was doing three at a time. And how I managed to do rehearsal schedule when I was doing three plays at a time and still working nine to five and raising wow. myself, I have no idea. I'm magical, okay? And then I, I luckily met my one of my absolute favorite humans on the entire planet and I still call her my rock and every time that I get an audition I go to her and every time that I have a thought or e even recently because I started getting into writing I've been going to her religiously and even though some days she just tells me and I'm paraphrasing here because she would never actually point blank say that I'm an idiot but she tells me in so many words that I'm a dumbass and I get it and I appreciate it because she tells me what's what I'm not connecting with and then I go back to the drawing board and I go and like I'll do some mirror work or I'll re-examine the story that I'm working on or I'll experience you know what's going on in this particular piece a whole lot differently and so like this is going to be my heartfelt shout out to Altair Gorel. I love this woman from the bottom of my heart to you know infinity this woman has is the one that inspired me to actually go from just doing community theater again to get into professional film and television and she was like basically said what the what are you doing um, if you love this do it like don't waste your time anymore go and do it and she really lit that fire under my butt and that was like two years ago and she connected me with people like Gloria Mann and I went and I did the Gloria Mann workshop and then I did the next workshop the next the next workshop I got my headshots done I got an agent I started in and it just like spitballed from there so I really want to go back and say that without Altair I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now because she is pure magic and I wish that she would open her own acting school and start training people because not only does she train me and continue to work with me, but she has trained a handful of actors that have gone on to become incredible. Like her, her daughter is you know getting picked up for things in California. She's getting all all over the place, and not just her daughter. Like she's got three kids. All three of them are professional actors in different degrees. She's got an adoptive daughter who is also a professional actor in different degrees. Who is absolutely incredible, you know, serious lead in different TV shows, like, all of them are, are magic, and then we call us ourselves the army, and so there's a, a core group of us that continue to go and, like, get these auditions and land these roles and do these things, and it really comes back to what Altera has done for us, so, yeah, shout out, love you. <laughs> that is amazing. I will say that when I met you... <laughs> When I met you on uh, L.A.'s production, Kitchen Conundrums, I remember, because you didn't have a lot of lines, I think, in, in yeah. that, and neither of us did, but you, your commitment to your role just blew me away. I, I remember <laughs> that. Like I was sitting there watching you perform, and it was amazing. It was, well, thank you. It was it was amazing to see, and then 
you know, when I started bumping into you in class, that was great. <laughs> I'm glad. Yeah, because it's a whole like growth cycle where I know like when you met me when I when we did that that was that was really fresh. That was still yep. like just a couple months into starting to take this seriously. I had not gone actor at yet. Um, I was still fresh. I was still dealing with some wounds from my previous school. I mean, we could sit on that a little bit. And still trying to find my feet and my voice. And since then, I mean, I know I still have a lot of work to do as an artist. And I'm growing in so many different ways. And, you know, I've, I've overcome certain ticks and I've developed new ticks. And I've overcome those ticks. And I've found different ways to dig deep and find find a character within, say, I've only got two lines, but I find this entire backstory and, and find, you know, where I can go with it. And the attention to detail has really helped me, and now I'm at that point where I'm learning to take that attention to detail, I've done the work, and throw it away, and just allow the acting to be easy. Yeah. And um, not worry, it's like, also when you met me, I was going through physical issues where I was dealing with metabolic disorder, so I was very uncomfortable in my own skin. I was actually uh, over 100 pounds heavier than I am right now, and I'm still dealing with those demons of, of weight and body issue and, and um, image that creeps in now and then. So where I'm at now as an actor is learning that it's okay to um, love the ugly, and ugly sounds, well, ugly, but it's allowing the natural to just exist and to breathe is what I mean by it. And not worry about having, you know, the perfect face or, oh my god, the camera's going to see this roll of fat or they're going to judge me because my eyebrows look funny. That stuff. It's just allowing myself to just exist. It has become my new mantra and I'm trying. And it's hard because I'm at that point where it's it's not about the acting or the technique. It's it's more psyche at this point. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of wild to, to deal with. <laughs> and I, I imagine, especially being being a woman in this industry, it's extra hard, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. Like my first agent, even like at the time, because I, I was always on a weight loss journey. Like after I had my son, is when I developed this metabolic disorder and I ballooned, and so I was always dealing with a weight issue. And mm -hmm. my first agent like belittled me because of my weight, and that was one of the reasons why I left her. Um, so, walking into the industry and dealing with those issues, and then trying to find yourself in it and grow from it, and now. Now allowing myself to accept has been a, a journey all on its own. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, you know, women in the industry have so many things pushing against them, be it we're too old, we're too fat, we're too young, we're too thin, we're too, too loud, we're too blonde, we're too dark-skinned, we're too light-skinned. You know, there's so many things that come into it that we're judged on physical appearance rather than ability that it's, it's a weird world to be in that now we're all fighting against and we're trying to push back on the industry and say, no, you can't do that anymore. That's not okay. We want to, you know, love the human and whatever body they're in and whatever whatever they bring to the table is their own flair and there is an audience for each and every one of us. Exactly. So, uh, moving forward in your career <laughs> and technically... This has been a really philosophical kind of podcast. <laughs> it has. It has. Uh, moving forward not just in the podcast, but also in, in you and me knowing each other. Um, when did you start into filmmaking, like the film filmmaking aspect of this industry? <laughs> this is so wild. Um, I was participating in many of the 
free kind of like online acting soiree classes, get together, Zoom functions, and um, developed a, a friendship with like Stephen Mann and Brad Milne and you know all of these people. So we got like Larissa Mayer and, and um, Powerhouse and Eboss and all of them were starting to come together and just have these talks and these sessions where they were they're chilling out and just explaining what's going on in the industry and then Stephen Mann came up with this idea to do the Isolation Film Festival. And its original original concept was make something of yourself at home with whatever materials you've got for under three minutes. Cool. The concept was great because it was just supposed to be this silly thing that we do, you know, as a group in a Zoom class and just present what we got and just have fun with it. And I was like, yeah, I can do that. I can definitely do that. So I reached out to a friend of mine, I'm like, hey. We're gonna do this thing. Let's let's do the thing together because you know you you know the technical side and I can do the acting side. And let's just create something. And so, um, Jamie and I got together. We started talking. Well, we didn't physically get together, but we you know over <laughs> over Zoom and yep. over Facebook we started talking about what to do. And we were like, well, the concept behind the original rules is it had to be on your own property. I'm like, okay, so we're I'm out in the forest and on the lake so let's do something a little bit different than say what somebody would do in in the big city and we started you know brainstorming what to do and I was taking pictures of what I have in my home and I showed Jamie a picture of this giant fairy that I've got and Jamie was like oh my god we have to use that okay I mean she's uh, large and awkward but sure and so we came up with this concept to do what ended up being called watching and we made a three-minute incredibly low budget on a tiny little hand cam out in the woods with, you know, in the ravine next to my house, kind of three-minute horror film, and um, again, following the original rules for ISFF, where we couldn't show excessive violence, and I, I mean, I've got a, a little bit of a background of doing theater makeup and special effects, so I would have loved to explore more special effects, but yeah. I'm okay with what we came up with, and I'm actually really proud of what we came up with because it's cute, and we made this three-minute film and submitted it, and that kind of inspired me and I said hey let's start making more dumb stuff I mean I've been sitting on a couple of film concepts never thought that I would put them together and put them to paper and I've started to write those now and I'm communicating with people like yourself and we're starting to put together stories which are fantastic other people are I'm, I'm talking to you and just bouncing ideas off of and letting them write their story but I'm just being used as a soundboard much like I use you as a soundboard sometimes um, just for concept of how to develop you know the the depths and the layers of these characters so it's not all two dimensional and it's just kind of spitballed from that moment and then I had a dream one night and I was like hey let's make you know because everyone's diving down these conspiracy theories that have to do with the pandemic and Trump and Bill Gates and all of this nonsense I'm like well let's let's make fun of what's trending in social media right now and conspiracies so you and I made a cute little film that had people pass a brush back and forth and fall down a rabbit hole and that was fun and now I'm on to the next project where I'm actually writing a, a, fr a, a true story about a friend of how they escaped uh, Nazi occupied Hungary during the war and this one actually scares the crap out of me because I was sitting in a panel the other day of directors and producers and all that and one of the things they kept saying is don't make your first film a period piece and here I am writing making a period piece a full on period piece I'm like you know what <laughs> I'm going to do it anyways <laughs> I would I would argue your first film which uh was an eldritch horror so so yeah. this is your third film so you're good 
Uh, true, but I mean, like, it's the funding behind it. And, like, oh, that's true. you know the story of this one, but for those who are listening, what I'm trying to do is actually, it's a, a snapshot on a train uh, leaving Hungary during the war. And it's such a beautiful little moment of a love story. And, I mean, I've been given creative liberties to play with it. And technically, as far as funding and, and budget goes, I could strip it down to literally just be on the train. So that would be the biggest issue when it comes to the cost but it's still kind of invigorating and completely exciting to be putting it together I've been bouncing the concept back and forth off Michael every time that I've changed it and I've changed the story like four times already so <laughs> that's fine but the real story is so beautiful and I, I that's this is why I keep changing what I've done even though the owners the, the people that experience this story in real life um, sorry, my son's yelling in the background. Okay. <laughs> Even the people in the real story, that their their real life story, they've asked me to take creative liberties with it. They've told me to change the names in it because, I mean, their escape from Hungary was technically against the law. <laughs> so I have to be very careful with how I present it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just keep going back and like what I've written last, what you saw last, it's a great story, but it takes away from the original story. So I want to go back and rewrite it again go back to the, the, the true crux of the story and what I can do with it to lead up to tension playing yeah. with it so yeah I I really like what I've been reading of your film so far and I'm like I'm really excited for it I'm really excited for it to take shape I also am the weird kind of creative who looks at your story and go can I borrow your sets and your actors and turn it into a zombie movie hell yeah while you're filming it can i film a zombie movie too like you 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 film your scenes then i take everyone put them in zombie makeup and and make a make a zombie film out of it i mean i'm actually living for this because i've told you uh, a few times that my ultimate goal in life is to play the bad guy in a horror film so if that means i play a zombie for five minutes and die and have like this glorious death i will have achieved peak (laughs) <laughs> peak performance right there. Oh. <laughs> I will I will say this. Uh I mean, we've we've talked about this before in chat, but I would love for you and me to play like this evil murderous couple. Cuz yeah. cuz people don't you don't see something like that in film, right? An interracial evil murderous couple we could be monsters we could be just people i don't i don't know what the story would be but we kill the living crap out of the heroes before i guess they take us down oh yeah we'd have to have a glorious death that's just you can't the bad guys can't live that's just not a thing Yep. Well, i mean they could but they just have to come back and haunt people but that's a different story arc in general but i mean i was um when i was talking to the boys from from the uh, UK uh, film festival, we're actually talking about women in horror film. Mm-hmm. I think a power couple where the violence that comes from typical man, like a male um, horror film role, and the deep and sadistic cruelty that comes from women when they become murderesses, like because we take it, a, a, women psychologically, like I'm saying it wrong. In psychology, women who go down dark paths, their targeted experience isn't to go for violence, but prolonged pain and suffering, Mm -hmm. right? So the way that we could write this would be so dark (laughs) because we've got two angles to go for. 
um, yeah, it'd be a lot of fun. <laughs> Do you remember um, that chat you and I had where I told you I had this idea about a, a film about a couple? who are about to, you know, do the thing and then a killer shows like a killer monster shows up but then mm-hmm. the, the the couple kind of stops what they're doing and then starts trying to get each other killed so that yeah. they save themselves and then the monster's like, "All right, you know what? Screw this. I'm not killing you. You two are evil." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it'd be fun. It it plays on the tropes differently than, you know, your traditional film is. We just have to make sure that the characters are not two dimensional to oh, yeah. give some kind of empathy towards each of them for different reasons. Um so oh, yeah. you know, the the viewer wants to stay on this path and see what actually happens. I'm wondering if you and I should write that. Make us this really evil couple. <laughs> A whore, Bonnie and Clyde coming soon. And then night, yeah. night. You're you're the evil monster that comes after us at the beginning. Yeah. What? Well, <laughs> okay. okay. Who expect? Okay, like who expects a an evil Asian monster who's not from the Grudge? Yeah. Or the Ring? Like not like that. Like and legit like Michael Myers. I you mean, know, go, go and watch um, Audition for that kind of darkness. <laughs> but I'm just saying, Knight, you're like a small, skinny, typical skinny. Asian looking. Hey, you're, you're really thin. <laughs> you're, you're really fit. But I'm saying you do not fit the bill of a typical horror monster. You know what I'm yeah. saying? So... <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it right now. Let's let, let, let's put it down. I'm living for this. <laughs> make it's, those changes. The three Throw of us. <laughs> the three of us are going to make a movie. Nightingale, you're the monster. You're there to kill Katisha and me. And then we're just freaking evil because we're we're dicks. <laughs> we try to get each other killed. We try to convince you to kill the other person. I think to the smart. point. Where you night <laughs> just ideas, give right? up. Alright, so back to the podcast. <laughs> what? This is part of the podcast. We gotta save some of this for the movie theater, Michael. Okay, we can't spoil everything. Yeah, we but because we have it right recorded, now. no one can steal it? We already put the idea out there. If someone tries to copy it, we know we can sue. <laughs> it's time to <laughs> <laughs> Okay, moving forward as we kind of draw this thing to a close. <laughs> We've covered a one, lot of that. One of our Instagram uh, listen, like people who listen to our show on Instagram, asked, "Can you make a film in quarantine?" Absolutely. I mean, I think both you and I are proof that you can because. Mm-hmm. Your film's uh, a switch has been collected and and is official running for what three or four different uh, small film festivals. We're I made two well in quarantine four. here. Yep. Yeah, like it's an official selection. Um, so and I've made two films in quarantine, and I'm considering a couple more. You and I are working on one Despair. that is technically able to be done all in quarantine. Although as things open up, we might actually be able to do it together. Um, in the same room, but still have that 
in individual places um, rolled out. We'll see how things go and as things open up. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm in no rush to force people into the same room, but there, you know, things are changing. But absolutely, 100%, you can make a film by yourself in the bathtub if you really wanted to. Okay? Are, <laughs> like, are you referencing so Stephen Mann here? <laughs> no, but that is that is true. I I completely was just thinking of somebody playing with the rubber duckies and filming a little film, but oh. Steven's bathtub moment was pretty epic. Because <laughs> you know, hey Steven, since you're probably not listening to this, you know when I come audition for you, I don't know if I can see you the same again after seeing you <laughs> in a bathtub naked. Because <laughs> hey, think of it this way: you know, when we go into an audition room, that is us walking in and laying ourselves bare. He's just done that thing where we're told when we're young that when you walk on stage, just picture everyone else naked. He's already done it. We don't have to picture it. We've yeah, seen it. <laughs> we've seen it. It's burned into my brain. It's a permanent image. So that just um, closes the gap when we walk into the casting room. Yeah. And we're all officially human. And some yes, of us are. make soup in our own bathtubs. <laughs> <laughs> Love you, Steven. You're awesome. That was that was that was an amazing film you were in. It was. We have to give a shout out to Liam, which is his his uh, son, his oldest son, is the actual per person who made that little film for him. So, like Liam is an up and coming filmmaker. He's about to go to school uh, to become a a professional filmmaker. Although he's already got the eye, so that he kind does. of raw talent without physically being trained yet, I he's somebody to look out for. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm excited despite the fact that he's got the family connection, he is somebody to watch for because he's going to be making some magic and it's going to be incredible. Absolutely. So what uh, what can we expect in the future? What are your plans? Other than other than your films that you're working on, any other uh, things that you're you're planning for in the future? Um I mean, I just hope that I'm able to continue to grow an experience as an actor and an artist. Mm -hmm. And I really hope that my ability to connect and network with other people is that we can continue to grow this little collaborative group of artists that are able to elevate together. You know, um, I don't know if you've seen the, the, the series Hollywood, but the opening credits for it that's playing on Netflix right now is... Um, they're actually climbing the Hollywood sign and they reach and they support each other and pull each other up and I see that happening right now as a collective like between yourself and myself and the people that we work with together on a regular basis is we are pulling each other up the rungs of these ladders to get to the top of the Hollywood sign and where we, we're not seeking, well we might not be seeking out Hollywood California but our Hollywood North and Hollywood in quotation marks world to create art together and to continue to thrive and push you know, the narrative forward and, and get people to just grow together. And that's kind of my thing is I want to establish that collective and continue to push people forward in, in their particular niche, whether it be they are a poet or they're a rap artist or you know, they're a visual artist or they're a pottery maker or whatever they do. I just want to see the art flourish and grow. That's kind of my long-term goals is just to see us all level up. That's that's an amazing goal, and uh, I'm happy to work with you on that. And hey, maybe we'll have our own studio one day. The TWOMF Studio. 
I'm kind of into that. I yeah. mean, I think it should happen. <laughs> All right. Night. You hear that? We're going to make this happen. A whole entire movie studio all to ourselves. That sounds fabulous. More murder awesome. couple <laughs> films coming soon. Yeah. Hey, investors, <laughs> if you want to throw money somewhere post-COVID-19, we're here for you. Yeah. We all are right. definitely here for it. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So to bring this episode to a close, Katisha, how can people connect with you online and join you for your journey? Uh, I'm pretty much all over social media. Uh, a lot of my acting stuff gets thrown onto Instagram. So I, I like to use that one more professionally because I'm a little more contained over there. Uh, but if you want to look for me there, it's catatonic uh, with a K. So K-A-T-A-T-O-N-I-C underscore cat. Um, and I'm on there. If you want to find me on Facebook, it's Cat Catatonic. Uh, but I do warn you that I'm very vocal uh, politically on there. So if you have a weak stomach, I wouldn't recommend friending me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Just because I, I like to speak out against injustices, both you know, for any kind of, of social cause, whether it's for the LGBTQ community, for it, um, people of color, be it for women. I'm very loud and vocal, and I don't hold back when it comes to my opinions because I don't, um, I don't support injustices. But on that same token, I'm also a scientist by nature, and if new evidence comes forward, I am the type of person that will admit that my opinion is wrong, and I will adjust based on the evidence presented. So if you want to play that game, Please, by all means, send me a friend request. I'm happy to chat. I, I love making friends. Um, but if you don't want to hear my thoughts on politics, I suggest you stick to Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> Just on that note about your your politics, thank you so much for being a part of our poem reading at the beginning of one of our previous episodes for Black Lives Matter. We appreciate having your voice there with everyone else. I was so happy to be part of it. And I thank you for asking me to be there. <laughs> Always. Knight, how can people connect with you? Y'all can find me on Instagram at knight.nguyen. And I am on Instagram and Twitter as at MichaelCWChan. Plus, you can check out my website. It's michaeljan.ca. Listeners, thank you so much for listening to this episode. We really appreciate it. We also extra appreciate it because this is, again, the extra inebriated, extra <laughs> intoxicated episode. I, I mean, it's gone on really long, and it's because we're all drunk. Well, except night. I think right? we're drunk. I think it's because we are deep. <laughs> and I think it's deep also like bottle. we all want to socialize with each other. We cannot wait oh to God. exit quarantine to be face to face with each other. Right? So this is all I, that we've got. I miss hugs. <laughs> yes. Yes. So many, so many group hugs after You're this right. is over. <laughs> yep. So many. So many. <laughs> All right, guys, <laughs> listeners, again, thank you. And as always, stay safe. Stay hungry. What? Yeah. No. <laughs> stay home. Stay safe. Eat and, all the food. <laughs> yes. And, okay, okay, okay. Night. One, two, three. Stay, stay hungry. 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 <laughs> Oh my goodness. This has been Talking With Our Mouthful with Michael Chan and Nightingale Nguyen. The music by bensound.com. If you enjoyed this episode, why don't you join us on Instagram and Twitter at, at TWMF Podcast. 
We have a lot of bonus content like food pics, behind-the-scenes shenanigans, and more info about all the places Michael and Nightingale visit. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. A new episode comes out every two weeks. Thanks again for listening, and stay hungry.